just feel like we're family. And uh, we are so grateful to you. And we laugh, we joke, we laugh a lot more. We joke, we laugh a lot more. I have to laugh at the Clifford's jokes, but I do it because I'm nice. No, just kidding. I'm kidding, James. I'm kidding. Uh, no, seriously, it's just delightful. Um, somebody said to me, they said, well, Steve, you haven't told any stories about your family. Well, we got lots of lots of stories about our, our family. Uh, but I think some of the, the best stories happened to us um, two years ago. And, um, you know, when my, my father was living with us, and about two years into his stay, he was was going to die. And it was COVID year. He never got COVID. I think he had liver failure. You know, but during that time, uh, those first six months of 2000, if you took somebody to the hospital, you'd never see them again, right? And I didn't want to do that. And he'd always told me, he said, Steve, when it's my time to go, let me go. Well, that sounds great when you got years to plan, but when you're on the doorstep of death, you go, I don't know if I can do this, you know. But we prayed, we asked the Lord, and we said, well, we should take care of him at home. My dad, you know, he was, uh, he was, he was uh, had a hard life, raised in the Depression, farm boy, dairy farmer, I mean, you know, up at 4 a.m., all that stuff, hard family life, um, yelling and screaming until 3 and 4 in the morning of parental arguments, and it was hard for him. No Christian discipleship, nothing. He was saved when he was eight, and, you know, it's a wonder he even walked with God. He was a twin. My uncle, he also professed Christ, but did not walk with God. My dad chose to walk with God, and he struggled. He uh, was in the workforce and was very successful, uh, kind of the guy that uh, had to make his own way. You know, that generation that would say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I can't even find my shoes, let alone the bootstraps. And, uh, and so, you know, I had great respect for him, and he developed sort of a toughness to life. And when he moved in with us, he had t- totally changed. He was soft. He would um, express thanks and manners and just different. As he got older... Over those you know, two years he lived with us, towards the end there, he, he had trouble with just taking care of his body. You can imagine what that's like. Just the, the daily, what's going to happen next, we don't know. Any little thing could be the final event. You lived on pins and needles, and, and we lived like that for quite a while. Towards the end, as he couldn't take care of himself, I needed to bathe my father several times a day because of accidents. I really didn't want my wife or children to kind of get involved. That would be embarrassing for them, maybe embarrassing for my dad. He was losing his memory, so I don't know if he'd remember to be embarrassed. But, but one day, I, I, I just didn't have enough hands. I was trying to keep him from falling in the shower while I bathed him. and There was a huge mess in the other room. My sons, our sons, they didn't even flinch. Unbeknownst to me, while I'm taking care of my father, they went in, stripped the sheets, got them in the washer, scrubbed the floor, scrubbed the counter, scrubbed the toilet, scrubbed the commode, everything, and sterilized the whole place. It was spick and 
that room was never cleaner since when my <laughs> since my dad moved in there because we cleaned it multiple times a day. Then they come in. After they're doing their job, I'm still working. I go, Dad, how can we help you? I said, oh, no, boys, you don't, you don't need to help. I'll take care of it. They go, no, Dad, we've already cleaned the other room. We've got the sheets in the washer. Um, what can we do in here for you? So three men, myself and the two grandsons, finished taking care of my 82-year-old father. It was a feat. <laughs> you have to have him stand on one foot while you put the pants on. You know what happens? He can go down. <laughs> so we had three guys holding him up like a Christmas tree. You know, the thing that I remember so vividly about those moments was the incredible serving attitude of my sons. They never said to me, what a pain in the neck. How much longer are we going to have? They never said that. In fact, they were so joyful. They delighted in opportunities to care for their grandfather. I actually think it spoke to Janet's dad, who lived with us at the same time. It was really funny. They both were named Bob, so in the morning they would go like this. Morning, Bob. Hi, Bob. How you doing, Bob? Fine, Bob. Did you sleep well, Bob? Sure did, Bob. Have a nice day, Bob. Okay, Bob. Bye-bye. It was just like comedy, you know. But my sons were the backbone of our ministry. No one knows that. No one, we don't go around broadcasting that. I share it with you for the sake of this personal, um, personal touch. But I, I want you to know that during those times, I often wondered, God, what are you doing? What am I doing? And then I'd look at these two young men, and they never had those questions. They just accepted that God was doing. And that spoke to me. Today, I'd like to talk about the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Now, when you say that term sovereignty, it can cause one of two reactions. The first reaction is, hey, what do you mean by that? And normally that's mine. But the second reaction is, whoa, what are you doing this is a hot topic, and don't you know it's going to cause all these arguments and fights, and oh, you've got to be quiet now. All right, so let's deal with the elephant that's in the room first. When we talk, when we say the word uh, sovereignty, and we refer it to God's sovereignty, almost immediately in the minds of most Christians who have wrestled with this topic, they think I'm referring to salvation the salvific, uh, redemptive story. And what do I mean specifically? Well, uh, one end of the spectrum says that, that God is so sovereign, He even chooses who will be saved, maybe even inferring who will not be saved. And therefore, if you follow it out, He only died for those who were going to be saved. We call that limited atonement. Then you got on the other side of the spectrum, a bunch of people says, well, God is sovereign, but not like that. Man chooses. In fact, man can choose to be born again, and because he has such an independent action of, of choice, he can choose to be unborn. And we get these debatable factors, and somewhere in the middle, people meet, and we duke it out. Now, I need you to know something. 
I need you to know that if we want to limit the discussion of the sovereignty of God to a small portion of the field of God's discussion, we're going to remain in this corner all day long. But did you notice that there is 90% of the rest of the field of God's truth that is untouched by keeping the sovereignty of God underneath the discussion of salvation? The truth is, is it so in places in the Bible, the word choice is used in God and, and, and certain things. And the truth is, is that the word, the idea of man choosing is also used in the scriptures. And somewhere in the middle is actually probably how it works. And I don't really know how it works. I'm pretty sure those who think they know how it works, they don't really know how it works. Right? It's one thing I learned in medicine. Never say you're always totally 100% right. You know why? Because some patient will walk in and make you a liar. Right? They always have a stiff neck with meningitis. Well, no, they don't. They always have an elevated white count with appendicitis. No, they don't. So don't be, so, if that's such a small thing in the world of medicine where you learn not to always be so definitive because you've, been, you've seen where you've been proven wrong, then please don't go around saying, I got this thing wired and I know exactly how it works out. And if you don't agree with me, you are less than an optimal Christian. That's what we're doing when we are so dogmatic. I've learned very in the hard way that that is a very unsafe in a non-defendable position. Do you know why? Because it has the roots of pride. And God says only one thing about pride. I oppose the proud. Do you know what the word oppose means? It means his sword is drawn and he's ready to run you through. It's not like I disagree with you. It means I'm going to remove you. That's what it means. So listen, we don't, we don't have an option to play that game. Yes, somewhere God has this figured out. If you push me, I can give you my opinion, but I will tell you it's just my opinion. And I don't think it matters that much. What does matter is that the sovereignty of God blankets the whole field of our existence. That's what I want to talk about today. I want you to see the sovereignty of God, not just in the terms of a discussion of salvation. In fact, I won't talk about salvation at all, except in this introduction. But what I will talk about is what the sovereignty of God means to our functioning life today. Because without a clear a perception of this concept, you have a whole lot of difficulty trusting the God who you don't think is in control of everything. You see that? If you don't believe that God is in control of absolutely everything, that he rules and, and moves all things to accomplish his will, then you feel like you're on a ship without a rudder or a ship without a mast or a sail. And that erodes the faith of the Christian. And what that does is it causes you to doubt God. And it makes the journey and this pilgrimage infinitely more difficult, if not impossible. So that's why I have to talk about it. All right, let's move on. Sovereignty of God. We've got to come up with some definitions. Now, you can see, and it's very much talked about in Ephesians 1 through 3, again, discussions of salvation. Some of it, I think, refers to what God does while you're in Christ. But we need to come up with a working definition. It's not just this, it's not the concept that God pre selects people to be born again. I actually uh, don't think that's the case. But nonetheless, it doesn't matter what I think. The definition is way broader than that. God's authority 
God's control is overwhelming so that He can interweave His authority, His control with the decisions of mankind so that in the end, in the final chapter, the will of God, the purposes of God, the mind of God is still done. Now just pause for a moment. Those of you who have children, right? Think of the little children when they were younger in the house. And, and you were sovereign over your castle. You know, we now, as aged parents, we realize we've never been sovereign of anything. But back then we did. We thought we were in control. And so what we would do is we would, we would make decisions that would guide our children in your sovereignty. And they would come along and you would say, no, uh, it's time to go to bed. And they would give you the, uh-uh. All right, you ever, you ever see that? Yeah, no. I remember one of my kids, I said, it's time to eat your dinner. He looked at me like this. He grabbed onto the plate. I said, oh, 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 you have made one of the worst decisions of your first 750 days of life. And so I then tailored my next action based on his decision so that he would eventually come to do my will, right? You see it? It happens in the family on a routine basis, a microcosm of the bigger picture. And that's what he does. So he comes along and God allows there to be decisions. Do not eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. In other words, there is a choice you can make. And Eve and Adam made that choice. It was not a good choice. And yet what happened was we catapulted not just man and woman, all of creation into this massive waterfall cliff of destruction, which is talked about in actually Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But God doesn't say, oh, too bad, so sad, wouldn't want to be ya. Right? He doesn't do that at all. He then takes the foolish decisions of mankind, inter, like, like he's given a shot, he interjects himself into the human dimension, into time and space, which, by the way, he lives outside of. He then limits himself to time and space where we exist and then orchestrates human history to bring a gene pool together so that his son would have genetic relationship, if you will. He would have lineage, familial lineage, to those he promised at the beginning of creation i.e. Abraham's line, so that Christ would be born in a pure, unadulterated, non, unadulterated, non-sinful state, so that the plan of God can be done. Do you see how he's weaving left and right and up and down? And along the way, mankind, Satan engineered through mankind, will try to thwart the plan of God. And so he'll come up with extermination um, uh, politi uh, regimes, political regimes that mean to exterminate the line of Christ. And guess what? They just got bigger. You ever hear of Egypt and the 70 uh, of Jacob's family that went there? He was going to kill them all. That was his plan. Started with the babies, wanted to work them to death. You move up the clock. You have multiple people in history who want to exterminate the lineage of Jesus Christ. So there would be no Christ. And what does God do? He takes the hatred and anger and sin of man and he weaves it in such a way 
that it still accomplishes its purposes. I got to feel that Satan has got to have one of the most frustrating jobs in all the universe. He never outwits God. Not that I would ever compare this, but it's sort of like uh, the coyote and roadrunner. The coyote never wins, right? Uh, they never disrespect my God in that way, but you get the idea. You see, this is what we have to think about. And if we just relegate all this conversation down to, well, God chooses and man chooses and somehow it kind of gets figured out and I don't really know what it is, then you know what we do? We have shrink-wrapped everything that encases God's sovereignty and we've kept it in a sandbox. In a time when there's political unrest, in a time when there is worldwide pandemic, in a time in which we have massive escalation in emotional um, maladies, depression, and suicide, things, because, things that develop because we're uncertain of the future, it feels as if it's out of control. Is it not the time to grapple with the truth of God's sovereignty? Will that not make a difference to the believer today and bring stability and solidarity to their pilgrimage along those who have no hope? Yes. So I would like to take that upon our challenge today. Let's get this straight. You see, as I put behind me, we do God a disservice when we do that to him. It's, think of it this way, if you were to take the love of God or the mercy of God and shrink it down to only be when you've committed a hundred sins, you, you say, well, Steve, that's not biblical. No, it's not, but just for the argument. Then what we do is we sort of put a wrapping around it. Um, we, put a, we put it in a Ziploc baggie. And you can only let out the mercy when you pass 100 cents. You say, well, that's easy. I did that yesterday. I know. I know. It's just an illustration. Now, the point is, is that that does a disservice to God. It cheapens who he is. Imagine if your children did that to you. Daddy, um, I, I, I want to ask you something, but I, I, don't, I don't think you'll do it because, you know, I don't know if you love me that much, Right? First of all, it's a great little manipulation tool of the child. But nonetheless, when that happens and you hear that kind of language, what's happening is you're being put in a small container about who you are. And the truth about you is much different. Believe it or not, this happens in marriages quite a bit. Where you come in, maybe you're a damaged person. By the way, we're all damaged, so don't feel bad about that. And we come into the marriage, and we had trouble visualizing what it is to be loved unconditionally because I was never loved unconditionally growing up, and, and I, I'm really kind of fearful that you will one day stop loving me. It's happened to me in my home. And so with that spouse, you, you're kind of uh, uh, secure, but you're insecure, and you're not sure if that love will one day run out like it ran out in all my growing up years. And what do you do? You disrespect the one who's loving you. And the same way we do that to God our Father. When we shrink wrap him down to a level in which his character and his attributes only have one dimensional function, we're disrespecting him. Why would we do that? 
Why don't we let him speak for himself and let our reality be dictated by his word? What he has said, how he has demonstrated himself, how he has acted through human history. And I would suggest to you that our faith will grow. Yes. Faith, we started with it on Friday night. As you know, it's without it. You can't please God. If you shrink down the sovereignty and providence, which is another concept I'll talk about in a second, if you shrink wrap the providence and sovereignty of God, it's impossible to please God. You need this. It's fundamental to your walk of faith. We need to know our God is sovereign. We need to know our God is so sovereign that He's just not like I'm aware of what's happening in the, in the back 40 of the universe, but that He is a provider in His sovereignty. That's a key. That's a key concept. Sovereignty of God is closely aligned with His providence or His provision. In other words, God's just not a scientific observer watching everything go, go, down the, go down to the bottom, to the abyss. God will see it and act upon it. He, you cannot separate those two from each other. God's knowledge of understanding of all the workings, the secret and non-secret sins, the good things and the bad things, are not just because He's making a list and checking it twice. It's because he uses such knowledge base to interface with people who are limited by time and space. It's very important you see that. The providence of God is an extension of his sovereignty. And today, when I go through our four examples, you'll see each one of these things. But before we get started and launch further, I have to ask you a question. Are you in that moment where... We, you understand about faith, you understand about His goodness, but do you understand that when He is in control of everything, it means His goodness is in play also? That His goodness is not limited, and it is as ex- equally expansive as His sovereignty, and it affects the good provision, the provision that He does, which is always good. You see, that's how it works. The character of God is not one thing over here, and one thing over here, and one thing over here. It's all mixed together like, a, like when you're baking a cake. Now, I don't bake cakes because I would actually end up with a burnt offering. But my wife, she is a baker, and I love it. I love to eat her mistakes, and I love to eat her successes, right? And yet what you notice, it's really funny. She has this, like, 55-gallon KitchenAid, all right? I didn't know they made them that big. Apparently they do. And then, and, and if she's not thinking, you know, if she's just doing her thing, she'll throw everything in, hit the, hit the, the button, and the flour goes, <laughs> like that. She's covered in white. I kind of think it's cute, and she hits me, and then I have to leave the kitchen. So, but the point is, is that when you're making a cake, all the ingredients, the eggs, the flour, the sugar, the baking, whatever it is, and, and the mix, it's all together. And then the, the beater makes everything equal mixed, right? We call it homogeneous. In science, it means that every particle is equal distance from another particle, a homogeneous mixture. Don't worry about that word, but it will be on the test. Now, the point is, is that that's how God is. It's like 
all of these things that we separate out and say, well, there's a love of God and the sovereignty of God and the providence of God and, and, and the goodness of God. And, and, and we separate it out. We try to analyze and think about it. But the, real, the reality is they're all together in one person, equal parts, mixture of God. So you don't walk away from his justice without walk, bumping in to his mercy. And you don't walk from his sovereignty without bumping into his providence. It's just that interrelated. They're all overlapping. And that's how you have to think about God. You see, part of our problem is when somebody criticizes our God, we go, oh, that's not true. But then we go, I wonder what is true. And here it is. This is what's true about God. So providence and sovereignty are highly connected. He just doesn't sit and watch things. He does things about what he sees happening. And what he does, because he's good, is always good. And because he's sovereign, it always is good to his intended purpose, which, by the way, happens to be the good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. And it all kind of blends. You know what gives you peace, Christian? Knowing that personally. Back in the day when I was first in medical school, uh, I was uh, rotating at an emergency department in the St. Joseph Hospital of Kansas City. And uh, uh, I was a young student, meaning I was dumber than a brick. And uh, I'm standing there, and the nurses are saying, has Dr. So-and-so come in yet? I go, yep. Who's that? And the nurse says, oh, he's outstanding. We can have a catastrophe, a bad trauma. He walks in the room. And everybody goes, I wanted to be that guy. I worked really hard to be that guy. Unfortunately, when I walk in the room, they all go, oh boy. But that sort of persona, that sort of presentation, that, that evidence of life in which, oh, someone's here, it's all going to be okay now, that's the sovereignty of God. And when you miss that, you put yourself through incredible gymnastics of anxiety, worry, apprehension, sometimes depression. And not, not everything can be solved in this way, but a lot of our problems can be solved with just the right understanding of who God is. Your faith then gets invested in Him, and your faith grows in Him, and God makes good on your faith. You know, I'm not, he says, I'm not a debtor to any man. You put your faith in me. I owe you. I'll pay up. That's what he's saying. All right. Now, I want to just uh, go through four specific, it's a long introduction, like its own portion of the message, right? I want to go through with you four incidents that illustrate, excuse me, various aspects of God's sovereignty and God's provision. And what you'll see in God's sovereignty and provision is that God's goodness is in the backdrop, all right? His good-heartedness is right there. And what you'll see is that you can trust God in what you can't see. You can trust in the sovereignty. Now remember, you, where you sit in the pew, you've got cultural upheaval. You've got violence across the country. You've got wars in Europe. You've got uh, pandemics that may resurge, uh, resurge. You have taxes, and we have no idea what's going to go on with our politics and administration. We've got all kinds of reasons to fall apart. This is the time when the sovereignty of God should mean a lot to you. So let's do it.
All right. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 24. You don't get a lot of teaching on Genesis chapter 24. Now, I'm violating another promise I made to John. Oh, don't worry. I won't speak at all out of Genesis this this weekend. And I'm like, I'm, that's my third trip to the book, okay? So, brothers, forgive me. I, I'm sorry. And just preach it anyway when it's your turn. The, everybody will forget what I said by then anyway, so that's fine. All right. Now, this incident is very interesting. This incident, this chapter, is about um, going back to the old country and finding a has a a wife for my son. We want to go back to the old country. That's my Dutch accent. It's not very good. I'm working on it. Okay. Now, when when what happened was Rebecca said to Isaac, you know, I really would like him to have a, Isaac, to our you know, our son, to have. Um, sorry, that's bad. Sarah and Abraham had Isaac. Isaac was ready for marrying age. Sarah was getting older and past. So Abraham said, you know, I need to have a son from the old country, not from the Canaanites. I had no idea how he got that impression from God, but apparently it was pretty clear. And so Abraham talks to his servant, Eliezer. And he says, I want you to make a promise. Now, the language in the Hebrew is kind of interesting because it says at one point, he says, put your hand on my thigh. Now, that's a very um, uh, private maneuver, right? It's, It's sort of personal. And what he's saying is, is when you put your hand on my thigh, it's as if you are promising that you will carry this 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 arrangement out uh, on uh, until the very death, if necessary. And it's it's a it's a very solemn event to do that. And so Eleazar promised. Now, what was the circumstances? He said, "No, I want you to go back to the homeland, and you find a wife for my son, and if uh, and and you bring her back." And Eleazar says, "Well, what if she's not willing?" Well, then you're released from this, right? Now, remember, Abraham was a prophet of God. It says that, so he, he had the mind of God. He says, you're released from that, but you need to bring her back. Don't get a wife from my son from the Canaanites. Okay, now let's go to the text, and we're going to watch the sovereignty of God unfold. Verse 1, now Abraham was old and well advanced, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, that's Eleazar, who ruled all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth. So this is a big deal. The God that I've served is the one that you're going to be in front of, okay? So don't make a mistake that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land which he came from? He goes, don't take my boy back there. Why? Because that's not where the promises were. The promises were in Canaan. And so the Lord, or Abraham said, beware that you do not take my son back. The Lord God of heaven, notice this sovereign statement, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, who spoke to me and swore to me. Do you know what he's doing? He's going back to the promises of Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 14, Genesis chapter 15, and he's staking his life on it. 
And he says, I go back to those promises made by Yahweh, and that's how I have ordered myself. You can trust God will provide. Because God promised it. And he says, you uh, uh, swore to me saying, take descendant, take to your descendants, I give this land and he will send his angel before you and you will take a wife for my son. Now, that's not the first time that this servant would have heard of this angel that would go before you. The angel of the Lord appeared multiple times to Abraham. One of the most delicate was in chapter 18, where, where he was uh, in the heat of the day sitting in, in I, think it was, uh, I think it was Beersheba. And as he was in the heat of the day, the angel of the Lord and two other angels came up. Abraham saw them. He rouses up quickly. He greets them. He offers them lunch. He then runs and gets the family involved. Sarah gets involved. The servants gets involved. Probably this guy. And he makes them lunch. He serves them under the oak tree, the mamre tree. And it's like uh, Abraham is waiting on the Lord. Can I get you more coffee? Would you like another bagel? How about some fresh meat of the goat? We just had it roasted this morning. How can I serve you? And the most interesting thing is that servant who was part of Abraham's entourage would have been eyewitness to everything interactive between the angel of the Lord and Abraham. So when Abraham said, the angel of the Lord will go before you, it's not like, who's that? It's like, oh, that person. That's how it would have been. Now, read on. If a woman is not willing to follow you, then you will release. Uh, you will be released from this oath. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master. That's a very solemn act, a very personal act, and swore to him concerning this manner. Now, notice what the servant did. He took ten of his master's camels and departed, and all the master's goods. I'll skip that verse. And he uh, and he said, verse twelve. This is the sovereign part of God. O Lord, God of my master Abraham, this servant is praying to Yahweh. We have no idea his lineage. He was probably Canaanite as far as we know. Maybe he was from Haran. I don't know. But he certainly wasn't a relative, if you will, or I should say a blood relative of Abraham. doesn't know evidence of that whatsoever. He said, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw. He already made it up into the, to the land of Syria. Now, let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your pitcher that I may drink, and she says, Drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant and Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Adlai, I love this. And it happened. And it happened. It happened how? Just like he asked. Look at that. Before he had finished speaking. I love that, that phrase in the, in the Bible. <laughs> Before he had finished speaking, this bad other dude came in and told Job what was going to happen. Before he had finished speaking. You see, it's as if God is on the verge of the throne anticipating the request and having it already in play to perfectly match the timing of your words. Do you know what we call that? The sovereignty of God. And notice I didn't say anything about salvation. That's how God is. He is a split-second God. He is perfect in timing, perfect in request, perfect in answer, perfect for your aching soul. 
That's what's happening right here. He's nervous. He's worried. He's, how's it going to play out? I've taken an oath. I don't know. I don't want to disappoint. I want to do the right thing. So listen, whoever it is that I say, but please uh, uh, give me a drink, that she would also say, please drink, and I'll, I'll take care of your camels too. He had 10 of them, and those little guys, they drink, okay? And they're not there. They don't like, oh, I, I'm done in two seconds. They, they, they got the hump for a reason, you know. And so what I'm saying is it was a lot of work. And that this person who was offering this measure of hospitality was really sacrificing us blood and sweat to do this job. And he said, let her be the one. Before he could finish speaking, this beautiful woman, wouldn't you know it, God would put beauty in there. It's like a bonus, huh? And he says, please let down your pitcher and drink, and I'll also give your camel's drink. Let her be the one. And it happened before he finished speaking. Rebecca was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the son of or the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. What do you think the statistical odds would have been for this guy to show up with 10 camels full of loot to show up at just the right time of the day when, uh, uh, when Rebecca would be there and her happening to be of the right individual family? What are the odds of that? Well, let me tell you, the number Google... It's not high enough to give you a statistic. You see, that's how God is. He is so good of, of, of working things out. And in this case, when he was all alone, Abraham wasn't there. Isaac wasn't there. It's just Eleazar and the unknown. And you might feel that you are the person like Eleazar and the unknown. And you, you're just crying out to God and you're asking specific requests. And I want you to know the sovereignty of God listens to the cry and the pain and the hurt of his people. Your desperation is heard by God. And so you take stock in this. You realize, you look at how he arranged the details. Split second timing, right family line, right moment, right place, right request. Man, did you ever have that happen to you? This happened to me many times, but more recently. Um, we were flying back from Israel. Now, we, we take Turkish airlines because it's cheaper. And we go to Istanbul. It's kind of romantic to say I was in Istanbul this morning. You know, What does that mean? I don't know. I feel like James Bond or something. And the thing is, is that when you fly back from Israel, we go from Tel Aviv to Istanbul and from Istanbul to Chicago. Istanbul to Chicago is a beast. It's, it's like a 12-hour flight, all right? And I had to make a connection, and not just me, three other people, had to make a connection out of Chicago to Kansas City, all right? Guess what? We're not going to make the connection. I thought we were because we got into Istanbul early, but we stayed an hour on the tarmac. And anytime you stay an hour on the tarmac and you're going east or going west, you're never going to make it. And so I go, well, Lord, maybe you could do a miracle and you could get us there early. Or you could do things like stop the rotation of the earth. I think you did that once before. Or the sun or something. But it's just me. I just, you know, Joshua asked the same thing, but I'm just, I'm just asking. So we get in and, and guess what? My connection flight is late. I'm going to make it. So we get off. We, we get off. We run to the little carousel and the little thing spins and spins. And there's no luggage for an hour and a half. I know, it's like dangling the carrot and going, oh, just kidding. And I go, Lord. And I, go, I literally go down, I sit down, and I pray. And I go, 
Lord, you know what's going to happen, right? We're going to miss our flight. I have to overnight. I have to get a hotel. I have to get two hotel rooms in Chicago at the airport. And Lord, it's going to be super expensive. And I don't know how you're going to fix this. And it's like the Lord said, and that's not your problem. Okay, okay. But I'm just pointing out there's a lot of things going on here, okay? You ever do that to God? Like he doesn't know. And so I was, I was having this conversation with the Lord. The Lord said, just calm down. Just rest in me. I call up Janet. Now, Janet is like the wizard of all people. And she goes, hey, I'll just call my cousin, see if he can pick you up and you stay at his house. Okay. Calls the cousin. Cousin is driving by the airport as we get our luggage and go out to the curb. We wait less than three minutes and he drives right up. No Uber, no hotel. He says, funny thing, my wife and kids are out of the house. I've got three empty bedrooms. You guys can have them all. Okay. Okay, that, that, that's, that's just like Eliezer, right? And so we go over to his house. We are so dog tired. We just all crawl in the bed. We sleep all night. I'm praying through that. I wake up in the night. So, Lord, we need to catch the standby flight because the next day they rebooked us for 7 p.m. There's nothing worse in the world than spinning your wheels in an airport for 12 hours. I'm like, Lord, how about we show up and see if we can get on standby? And so we get in there at 7.30 in the morning. Our dear cousin brought us back, and, uh, and I'm praying in line. Lord, we need those standby tickets. We need four of them. I know it's unlikely, but we need four. And by the way, it was my birthday, so I really want to get home, Lord. And so I go up, and the lady says, oh, yeah, there's enough seats. I said, okay, okay. So we go to the gate. I go up to the lady at the gate. Do you, you doing okay on standby? Can't make any promises, sir. We only got, oh, uh, three, maybe four. I don't know. No one, we, we have to wait till everybody checks in. You know that pop the balloon story. So I'm over there. I'm praying in my seat. I'm doing the Eliezer thing, you know. And this guy named Larry comes up, puts his arm around me. Steve, you okay? <laughs> I think so. He goes, what's the problem? And I told him the story. He said, well, let's just pray now. Puts his, he's bigger than me. Put, everybody's bigger than me. Puts his arm around me. And he prays and he asks God like he's in touch with heaven, right? And literally within five minutes, we all four had four seats. Five minutes. I got on the seat. I sat down. I go. Okay, 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 okay. You must spell sovereign, sovereignty with a capital S. Okay? That's what we need, isn't it? The sovereignty of God is not slack. It branches out to provide. Now, you would say, Steve, there's a lot of circumstances. That's the point. Those circumstances that you call circumstances are not actually happenstances at all they're the hand of god just like it was in this story that that girl would come up and offer to water all the camels at just the right moment when that guy was thinking that prayer that's what i'm talking about and if you refuse to believe that my friend where is your faith the world wants you to think it's all coincidence and happenstance and accidents and fate whatever that is but i tell you what it really is it's faith in a sovereign God. All right, let's move on. You know, we're going we're gonna to get just a little late, okay? Ruth, one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. I like to take you to Bethlehem because this is kind of where the story happened. And we, we go to this little nice area and we teach in this little dungeon thing. It's kind of cool. You know the story of Ruth. She was a, a Moabitess. And there's a law in the Old Testament that says that like to, up to the 10th generation, no Moabite shall be part of the people of Israel. So she was out. She was within that 10-generation thing. 
you know, it was uh, uh, the um, uh, um, Bethlehemite who went over to Moab and with Naomi, his wife, and his two sons, and they found Moabite, Moabitess wives, which they shouldn't have done. And over there, all the men in the family die. So it just leaves the widows, and it leaves the two daughters, daughter-in-laws, and, and uh, Naomi. Naomi, I think, means pleasant, but she was a very bitter woman at that point because she lost all the men of her life. She had no property and no food and no husband, no nothing. And she said, I'm going back. I heard there's bread back in Bethlehem, you know, the house of bread. And so she starts to head home, and the two girls follow her. And the one, Orpah, she's, uh, she decides to go back and find a husband back in the Moabite land. But Ruth, she's a converted Moabitess to Yahweh. She is a proselytite. She says, uh, uh, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. Don't make me go. I'm coming with you or I'm going to die trying. And so she goes back with Naomi. They go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem's today is a big city, but back then it was actually a small village. And so she walks in. Everybody knows her. And she says, they said, oh, it's good to see you, Naomi. Don't call me that. I'm, uh, God has treated me with bitterness. So now Ruth is there. Ruth has got the most pleasant, non-bitter spirit of all people. And she lost a husband too, by the way. And so she's over there and she says, well, maybe I should go out and glean. I understand that we can glean. How did she know that? She must have been reading the Torah. And so she goes out in the field and she starts to glean, you know, the corners where they're not supposed to harvest. And, and, and over a, a period of, of the summer months, uh, the guy Boaz is there. Now, isn't it ironic that she happens to go to Boaz's field, who is A, a relative, B, single, and C, wants to get married. I wonder how you do that. Well, it's called the sovereignty of God. He just matches up the hoops and drives the arrow right through them. And so what he does is he, he noticed, he just happens to notice her. Look at what it says in Ruth 2, 1 through 4. I don't have time to return to it. She goes, or he says to her, hey, um, sweetheart, I've heard all that you've been doing, and I want, I want you to stay in my field. Now listen, I've told the men, if they touch you, they die. So you don't worry about being harassed around here. There'll be no discrimination. And in fact, if you get thirsty, you come over to my servant's water containers, you drink as much as you want. All right. Oh, and by the way, let's give your mother-in-law some grain tonight. She gets more grain in one gleaning episode than you can get in weeks of gleaning. She takes it home. Naomi goes, oh, very interesting. She's like the ultimate matchmaker, right? And you know the story. The story goes into the next chapter where, where uh, 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 Naomi counsels Ruth on how to to express her interest in Boaz. It's very odd. Go down to the threshing floor. Watch where he lays down. He'll sleep. You uncover his feet. Why would you uncover the feet? Because he'll wake up, wit. He'll wake up and you're right there. And he'll say, he'll ask who you are and you tell him. And she goes, and Ruth, I just love her. She goes, okay, mama, I'll do it. She goes down there. She's in, you know, the whole thing in the cover. And he wakes up. Who's there? It's Ruth, your servant. Boaz is going, woo, I just won the lottery. And man, he is on fire. So by the next morning, Boaz gives her a bunch of grain. He's just giving mama grain, grain, more grain. They had more bread, probably feeding everybody bread. Goes back home, shows them everything. And Naomi says, this guy will take care of the problem by today. And I'm telling you, that's exactly what happened. All of this, the sovereignty of God, 
I just happen to go to the right field. I just happen to find the right relative. I just happen to be in the right place. I just happen to go to the threshing floor. I just happen to be with a guy that is so determined that he will go negotiate to the purchase price of our property and be our kinsman redeemer. Oh, and that was a beauty too. Hey, sir, uh, friend, I want to come over here. We need to talk a little bit. You say, uh, I don't know if you know this, but that property that Naomi has, it's up for sale. And uh, uh, would you buy it? And if not, let me know so that I may decide if I can buy it. Well, yeah, Boaz, we've been friends a long time, and uh, I'll buy it. Boaz, what a shrewd man. Wonderful. That is wonderful. I'm just concerned about the widows and everything. By the way, uh, did you know that if you bought that land, you'd have to marry Ruth the Moabite? I bet he used every syllable. And the guy goes, what? 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 Wait. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Slow down. I don't know about that part of the deal. You buy it instead. Boaz goes, well, if that will help you, my friend, I'll do it. You see all that? God is putting things in place in a foreigner who is an outcast and arranging people's emotions to respond to the will of God. You know what we call that? Sovereignty of God. Providence of God. And my friends, God can control those emotions too. God can control the foreign circumstances. God can control the outcast moments. God is sovereign, and He's never not been sovereign in your life. But I have more. This is the great story of Esther. You know the story, Ahasuerus. There's a lot of history involved where he goes off, he loses, he comes back, if you read some of the history. And, and, uh, and the queen snubs him. She's a beautiful lady. She wants, he wants her to come and kind of show off her beauty. It probably indicates there was maybe some indiscretion involved. And, and she says, no. I mean, basically, she didn't want to dance in front of a bunch of drunken sailors, right? And so the uh, advisors to Ahasuerus said, hey, boss, this is not good. All the women around the kingdom will start to hear this, and they'll start to disrespect their husbands. must have been a very chauvinistic society, though. And so what happened is they said, you've got to get rid of her, get a new one who's worthy. Was, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. I don't even think he was thinking about it until they said something, right? Well, you know, that event was very key. Do you know why that event was very key? And by the way, it was just someone's ego. That's all it was. It was an ego. And God used that ego to get the first queen out so we could have a national search for the next queen. And wow, it just happens to be Esther. She was a beautiful girl, and she just happened to be related to a man, Mordecai, her uncle, who was a man of God. And he just happened one day to uncover a plot that would save the king's life, and it got recorded in the annals of the king's history. How do these things get, how do they happen like that? How do the details stack up in just perfect array? Sovereignty of God. And what's going on in your life now? You know, when my father lived with us, I wasn't sure. God, what is your sovereign plan? He said, trust me. And you know what I learned? I learned how to be a servant to my father. But more importantly, I was able to watch my wife and my children be servants to their grandfather and father-in-law. I saw Christ living in front of me. I saw that. That was a, that was a great blessing. I heard words from my dad I hadn't heard in all of my years. I love you more than you'll ever know. I heard things from him that he would cry in my presence. 
He never would cry in my presence. My God was sovereign and meeting and providing on an emotional level, a spiritual level, and a physical level. And my friends, God will do that to you no matter the circumstance, whether it's an outcast situation, whether it's an alone situation, or whether there's some weirdo conspiracy afoot that is in the story of of Esther. And you know the story quite well. I'm sorry I can't read all the text because our time is limited. But the story is that, that she, she uh, is selected as queen and she's honored. And Ahasuerus kind of has a thing for her. But in the meantime, there's this guy, Haman, who is related to the Amalekite line that really wants the people, another plot to put the people of God out and destroy the lineage of Christ. And so he, he comes up, concocts this idea that it was all personal ego-driven to annihilate the Jews on a certain day of the year. And the the plan was put into play. And at the same time, get rid of that nasty Mordecai who snubs me every time I walk down the street. So he builds a a huge gallows, a a, a hangman's apparatus for Mordecai. And and it looks like Mordecai is going to die and the people of God are going to be executed. And finally, uh, there is an event that occurs. Mordecai contacts Queen Esther and, and he says, you need to go to the king. I can't go to the king. He hasn't called me. If I go without being asked, I'll lose my life. He said, well, let me tell you something, sweetheart. God will deliver you. God can deliver by your hand or another hand. God's arm's not short. Don't think you're going to be spared, my dear one. And she pulls it together. She asks for fasting and prayer. She goes into the king, and the king goes, oh, Esther, I feel like I haven't seen you in forever. Why don't you just come on down here? We'll have a little chat. That's my southern accent. Are you keeping up with the accent? Okay. And so she comes on down, and she invites him over for dinner. The king's all excited and say, oh, by the way, bring Haman. And, and then they, she does the charade and does it again. And she says, boss, our king, listen, King Pooh, there's this thing, and it's, they're going to hurt my people. And king gets mad. He goes, well, who's going to do that to my king? Well, that Haman over there. And then Mordecai, or Ahasuerus gets so mad, he leaves the room. Haman goes, oh, Queenie Pooh, please don't let me die. And he's on, on the couch with her, and the king comes back in and says, what are you doing? You don't make advances at my wife like that. You're a dead man. And somebody says, hey, by the way, boss, there's these gallows right over there. You want to use them today? Yeah, I want to use them today. Take Haman over there. Everything gets twisted, turned around in an instant. And that's the sovereignty of God. And beloved, I want you to hear this great God of yours, that he controls every single detail, every single emotion, every single fact, every single moment of time, so that his will is accomplished. The most important thing is by faith discerning his will. I could go on and on and on. You know the stories too. Daniel. Daniel had another conspiracy against him. They were all ready to, to, when he was in his 80s, or ready to get him killed because he couldn't attack him in any other way. And he prayed to God three times a day towards Jerusalem. They came up with this plot, and Daniel got thrown in the lion's den. There were hungry, hungry boys down there. And guess what? They weren't hungry that night. Who controls the appetites of starved, ravenous lions? Your God, your absolute sovereign God. So we need this concept of sovereignty, don't we? When we when we just relegate it to part of the field of discussion, 
we rob ourselves of one of the most important realizations about who God is. And when we do that, we start to disbelieve that God can actually provide. And when we do that, we actually erode our faith and the enemy paralyzes us in our journey. I think we should stop that madness, don't you? I do. That's why you study the Bible. It's not to be able to teach Sunday school, although it helps, I might add. It, it's to understand who God is and who Jesus is. Because that same sovereignty is given to the Lord Jesus. That's why he had to go through Samaria. Ah. Lastly, my friends, doesn't it make you want to worship your God? I mean, you just marvel. How did you do that? Sometimes I, I ask the Lord, I said, do that again. I'll give you a story and then I'll, I'll hush. It was an outreach in Kansas City. We were in prayer. I was going to the Sam's Club and the Walmart to ask if we could set up a booth. I said to the kids and my wife at the table, now pray for me. I'm going to go over there today and see if they'll let us do it. First Walmart said, no, you got to have it arranged months in advance. Okay. Went to the Sam's Club. I knew the manager there. He said, oh, we can't do that, you know. We had another group here, and they sued us, so we can't do that anymore. But listen, if you sell something, I can sponsor you, and you can have a booth at the front of the store. I said, we're not really selling anything because it was already free. And I said, here it is. And I gave him the gospel. He actually came to Christ a few years later. I went over to the third store. It was a Walmart. It's brand new. The manager that day was a fill-in. Imagine that not familiar with all the, all the rules and regs. I go up, I introduce myself, I show her our little seed sore packets, and we had something in there that says, need prayer, we care. I hand it to her, she looked at that, she goes, need prayer, we care. I'll never forget it. She looked at me like she was peering into my life. She goes, I think we need a whole lot more of that today, don't you? I go, yes, ma'am, we do, we do. I'll be right with you. She goes back, and it sounds like she's beating the drums or something. She comes back out. This Saturday, you can have a spot on each, on, on the south door, or excuse me, yeah, the south door for an hour and a half. Everybody else, five months. So on that Saturday, we go out. We have a team at that door. Now, we were not too smart. That's the thing about being an evangelist. You don't have to be brilliant, but you do have to try. But we were not brilliant, Okay. <laughs> And so we had like too many people and they just felt like, who, what, 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 what? And so I said, Bro, guys, you stay here and you just be friendly. And I'm going to walk between the two entrances and I'm going to pray. And I would walk back and forth and I would pray and I would see people get out of their cars and come in. And I would say, Lord, send them through our door, send them through our door. And uh, one guy was walking down the center of the parking lot and he was going to go into the door over here, which was the Boy Scout door. And he went like this. I literally, I went, I said, I looked up, I said, do that again. I want to see that again. Right? So I go down to my, my team. I say, how's it going? Would you get out of here and keep praying? We're getting rid of 90% of our stuff, okay? I said, okay, okay. So I go down to the Boy Scout door, which is the north door. 
And I'm leaning against the wall, and I'm praying, asking the Lord to send people through our door, open their hearts, blah, blah, blah. Somebody comes to the Boy Scout door, and they go, Hey, guys, how's it going? This is what they said. Not many people are coming out today. (laughs) They're all going through my door down there. (laughs) Sovereignty of God. I was an eyewitness. I want us to be a people today that witness the sovereignty of God at every nook and cranny. It takes faith. Dear Father, we come to you and we exalt you, for it is your sovereignty that crafted the plan of salvation, that brought it through the hands of a, a Roman-hardened regime with, with, with high priests and, and Pharisees and scribes that were so embittered against you, and yet you used all of that turmoil and nastiness to bring about our salvation in such a way that we will forever be redeemed, and that's because you are sovereign. You provide. Father, we need a healthy dose of this understanding. We need you to expand our realization of the greatness of who you are so that our God is not some little little person in a shoebox to us because that's what we do. And we, we dumb you down like you're some idol. No, Father, we want to see you in all your glory. So let us not ha- have hard hearts. Let us not have doubting hearts. Instill us with what it would take to trust you and, and, and follow you. Oh, Father, open our eyes to your great glory. Open our eyes to your goodness. Open our eyes to your sovereignty and your providence and your love and your justice and your mercy and your holiness. Open our eyes, Father. Let us see. Show us your glory. Show us your glory. And we will be forever followers of our King. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.